everybody. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Lights Out Podcast. I'm your host, Josh, and as always, I have my brother and producer, Joel, here in the studio with me as well. And for the last episode of October, we are going to be covering the infamous Ketty Cabin murders, which is an absolutely brutal quadruple homicide that took place in 1981 that involved the Sharp family and friends. And this is one of those cases that when I first heard about it, absolutely sent chills through my body because it's one of those cases where this could happen to anybody. I mean, being out in the middle of nowhere in a small town, you know, there's a lot of places like this where actually Joel and I live here in Colorado, you know, teeny tiny towns with little cabins that are super remote. And one of the things I always think about is what happens if I'm in a remote place, you know, staying in a cabin or something like that. And, you know, some killers show up and start terrorizing me or kill me. I mean, that's a genuine thought that I have whenever, you know, I stay out somewhere, you know, in the middle of the forest. I mean, it's super relaxing. Don't get me wrong. But when night falls, it can definitely get creepy out there. And, you know, they always say that some of the crazies out there that do shit like this live out in the middle of nowhere, right? You never know who's going to be around and you never know who's kind of hidden out there in the darkness. So, and this is one of those cases that has actually inspired several horror movies as well. One of them being The Strangers. If you've never seen that movie before, it's worth watching if you're into, you know, slashers and horror films. I mean, it it definitely gets your, your heart rate going, that's for sure. I mean, there's so many moments through that movie where you know, you just kind of jump and I mean, they make you jump, but just this idea of, you know, being in this cabin, you know, everything's going good. And then all of a sudden knock, knock, knock. And you've got somebody (laughs) showing up at your door at like three in the morning who you've never seen before. And they're asking for Tamara, you know, and you're like, who the fuck is Tamara? I don't, I don't, Tamara's not here. You must have the wrong house. (laughs) And then the fun begins. So, uh, yeah, it's just, this is uh, one of those cases that actually inspired that film, some of the events in it. And, you know, you'll see why later. But before we get into the episode, I wanted to also remind you guys that we still have merch available, milehiremerch.com. Definitely uh, copy some if you haven't already, because once we're sold out of these designs, they are never coming back. We're going to be doing a, a new drop, hopefully at the end of the year, if not at the beginning of next year. So if you want some of the the recent merch drop, definitely get it while you can. But without further ado, let's go ahead and get into the Ketty Cabin murders. So we begin the story by talking a little bit about Sue Sharp because she is one of the victims in this particular case. And it's important to understand her history and her background because a lot of the people that are involved with it in her background may have had something to do with that fateful night in 1981. So before she was Sue Sharp, she was actually born Glenna Susan Davis, and she was born on March 29th, 1945 in Springfield, Massachusetts. And from early on, as most people who are named Susan do, they go by the nickname Sue. As far as Sue's childhood and her upbringing, there wasn't a ton of information that I could find on that. So we kind of pick up her timeline when she marries a man named James Sharp when she's 20 years old, who also went by Jim. And with Jim, she had her first child, John, on November 16th, 1965. And about a year later, they had their first daughter together, Sheila. Then they had their second daughter, Tina, in 1968. The couple then went on to have two more boys, Rick and Greg. And so altogether, they had five children together. As time went on, Jim's anger issues started getting out of control, and he became emotionally and physically abusive towards his family. The family ended up relocating from Connecticut to the Carolinas, where they planned to have a fresh start together. 
but things for Jim did not get any better. It came to light that he was sexually abusive toward their daughters, Sheila and Tina. And in March of 1980, Sue actually left her husband for good and took her children to Quincy, California. There they stayed with Sue's brother, Don Davis, while she figured out what she was going to do next with all these kids. And at this particular time, Sue was around 36 years old. Johnny, her oldest son, was 15 years old, and her daughters, Sheila and Tina, were 14 and 12. And Rick and Greg were the two youngest kids of the family, and they were only 10 and 5 years old. In November of 1980, Sue eventually found a place that she could actually afford. I mean, she literally had little to no money. They were very poor. And they found a place in the remote town of Keddie, California, which is nestled in the Sierra Nevada mountains in Plumas County, California. When I say little town, this is a very, very, very small town. It's well under 100 people. I think they've said the population at the time was like 66 people or somewhere around there, 60-ish which that's hardly anything. I mean, that's not even really a town. And Keddy had been like this for years. I mean, for several decades, it had been well under 100 people as far as the population goes. And the population in the town only continued to decline in the early 1970s. They were going through a recession, as well as the railroad terminal that was in Keddy ended up being shut down as well. So that just stopped pretty much anybody from coming there. And the town was so isolated that it could only be accessed from a single road. And just a few years before the Sharp family moved to Keddie, the town was actually rebranded as a resort town. This was kind of a last-ditch effort to hopefully bring tourists in by calling it a resort town. And the only real resort-like thing they had there was the Keddie Resorts cabins, which eventually were turned into low-income housing when the tourists failed to show up. Once the cabins of the Keddie Resort became low-income housing, Sue realized that she could afford to live there. So she moved her five kids into Cabin 28 at the Keddie Resort. And this area of California is just relatively small in general. At the time, Plumas County only had a population of just over 17,000 people in 1980. So it's a very close community. I mean, in this type of place, everybody knows each other. And luckily, the Sharp family was able to make a few friends once they moved there. Sue's oldest son, Johnny, was independent, but he did sometimes get into a little trouble. At the time, Sheila was a little bit more mature and down-to-earth than Johnny was. Tina was trusting and a well-mannered girl and looked up to her big sister, Sheila. Rick, however, was shy and quiet like his mom, while Greg was more high-spirited like his big brother, Johnny. The cabin 28 that they moved into had two bedrooms and a basement room with a separate entrance. It was kind of like two levels where there was a door at the bottom as well. And Johnny, their oldest son, stayed in the basement room. Sue shared one bedroom with her daughters, Sheila and Tina, and Rick and Greg shared the back bedroom. So this is a very, very small cabin. I mean, my guess is it's probably not more than like a thousand square feet. If that, it might even be like 800 square feet. It's very small. And as most people did during the 1970s, 1980s, the family often left the cabin doors unlocked. And they primarily did this so Johnny could come up and go use the bathroom and the kitchen. He could access, you know, the upper floor. So that's why they left it unlocked. And living in a small town for us, like you and I both had a lot of friends who their families would just keep the doors unlocked at all times, you know. So I think that's kind of like a small town thing, too. Yeah, probably even still today. I bet you there's some small towns out there where people still leave their doors unlocked. And I mean, in this day and age, I wouldn't do that. But Some people really do feel that sense of community where they're like, we know everybody. There's nobody here that would ever do anything to us. So we're safe, right? Like there's nothing to worry about. When the family first moved in, 
They survived on a very small military stipend from Sue's marriage to Jim, as well as food stamps. That's how little they had. And obviously this didn't amount to much, but it was enough to keep the kids happy and allow them to have this fresh start in California away from their abusive father. Eventually, Sue started working part-time at a lodge in Quincy, a nearby town, and she enrolled in an education program at Feather River College and was given a small student stipend there. In this area of California, I mean, it's beautiful. It's just foresty. There's tons of you know lakes and places to swim, rivers, all that kind of stuff. It's very scenic. And their cabin was in a remote area, so there's plenty of space for them to run around and play and you know, lots of places to swim and just have a good time. They did have some neighbors though, even though they were in this remote area. I mean, they're in this Keddie resort, so there was other cabins around them. And so they met other kids that were around the same age and they would play with these neighbor kids essentially. And eventually they made this quiet life there where they had some friends and you know, everybody was happy. Everything was going good. Sheila became very close to the Seabolt family who actually lived in cabin 27 right next to the Sharp family cabin. I mean, they're not like right next to each other. It's definitely spaced out a bit, but I mean, you could walk over to it. It wasn't, you know, like miles away or anything like that. And the Seabolt family consisted of James and Zanya, as well as their daughters, Alyssa, Paula, and their older son, Jamie. Alyssa happened to be one of Sheila Sharp's closest friends. So up until this point, the Sharp family is feeling like they're in a good place. I mean, they got a new start, new house, new friends, and life seems to be going very well for them. But all of that was going to come to a very horrific end. On a Saturday afternoon on April 11th, 1981, Sue and Sheila drove into the town of Quincy, which is just a few miles from Keddie. Sue drove to Ganser Park to pick up her son Johnny and his friend Dana Wingett, who was 17 years old. Dana had a reputation for being a bad influence and a bit of a troublemaker, But Sue was just happy her son had a friend and didn't mind the boys hanging out. Two hours later at 3.30, Johnny and Dana decided to head back to Quincy. And Sue said they could go as long as they didn't hitchhike there. So the boys left and they're like, yeah, we agree. We won't hitchhike. But a woman named Donna Williams later said she picked up the boys in Quincy later that afternoon to drive them to a friend's house down the road. And that night, Johnny and Dana went to a party at Oakland Camp, which was near Quincy. The two boys were last seen around 10 p.m. in Quincy trying to hitchhike a ride back to Keddie after the party. Meanwhile, back at the Sharp cabin, the youngest Sharp boys had a friend over for a sleepover, a 12-year-old named Justin Eason. And Justin lived in cabin 26 with his mom and stepdad, Marilyn and Marty Smart. That night, Sheila and Tina were at the Seabolt family's cabin just watching TV, hanging out, and Sheila planned to stay the night there with her friend. Tina wanted to stay too, but the older girls sent her home between 9 and 10 o'clock. The following morning, Sheila woke up at the Seabolt's house somewhere around 7 a.m. And at 7.45 a.m., she gathered her things and walked back home to her family's cabin. And when she opened the door, the stench was unbearable. And it didn't take her very long to notice that there was blood absolutely everywhere. As she walked in, she quickly noticed that there was bodies tied together on the floor. And at first she wasn't able to process how many bodies there actually were, but then she saw her brother who was closer to the door. After she saw him, she started looking around the room for her mom, but all she could focus on was a bloody hammer and a bloody bent knife. And when I say bloody, I mean bloody. When you look at these crime scene photos, it looks like an absolute massacre took place. There's, a, there's just pools of blood everywhere. 
I mean, obviously there's multiple bodies on the floor and this is just an absolutely horrific sight to see. And obviously if you're walking into this, I mean, you're coming home from, you know, a great night the previous night. The last thing you're expecting is to walk into a literal massacre in your family's home. And from what I understand, Sheila was just absolutely shocked by what she saw. I mean, how can you even comprehend or compute what had just happened there? So after surveying the scene for a minute, she just dropped her bag, ran out the door back towards the Seabolt's cabin. She was absolutely hysterical, crying and screaming, asking where her mother and siblings were. When she got back to the Seabolt's place, James and Zonia went to a nearby lodge to call the police because they didn't have a phone in their cabin. And before they left, they told their son, Jamie, to go see what happened at cabin 28, which is like, what? Why would you send your son? That doesn't seem very smart, but that's exactly what Jamie did. He ran back next door and walked around the outside of the cabin, looking through the windows. And he was on high alert because he wasn't sure if an attacker was still around. I mean, that's what I'd be worried about too, is whoever did this could still either be in the cabin or in the area. I mean, clearly they're probably still in the area. So, I mean, who knows if you could be next? That's what I'd be thinking is like, there's somebody out here murdering people. Like, where are they? They haven't been caught yet. So my life is at risk most likely. But eventually he walked inside and into the main area of the cabin where the bodies were and started checking for survivors. He was very careful not to disturb any potential evidence, but he wanted to see if there was anybody still breathing. But unfortunately, when he did this, he obviously could have contaminated the crime scene. After checking to see if there was any survivors, which obviously there weren't at first glance, he then went back outside and then looked through one of the back bedroom windows where he actually saw Rick, Greg, and Justin, who apparently were still asleep and unharmed. This is one of the craziest things to me about this case is the fact that these three boys were still asleep when they found this scene the next day. That's crazy to me. Like, how did somebody come in here and murder three people without even waking them up? That that just seems impossible to me. Jamie then opened the window, went through, and woke up the boys, apparently, and then helped them climb back out the window. In order to avoid going through the cabin's main area, obviously he knew he didn't want to contaminate the crime scene anymore, as well as he just didn't want the boys to see the horrific scene that was in the main area of the cabin officers from the Plumas County Sheriff's office finally arrived at the scene just after 8 AM along with the Sheriff's office. Sue's brother, Don also arrived at the cabin as well. And the police had Don go inside the living area to identify the bodies. And he had to walk out multiple times before he was able to stay in this room long enough to even identify his sister. That's how gruesome the scene was. But after some time he was able to identify that one of the victims was his sister, Sue Sharp, as well as his nephew, Johnny Sharp, and Johnny's friend, Dana Wingate. Again, this scene was absolutely horrific. The entire room pretty much was covered in blood, including the ceilings. I mean, you can imagine if somebody's being bludgeoned or stabbed repeatedly, how much blood spatter there's going to be. There's pools of blood everywhere, and there's bloody knife marks, which are on the wall. So it looks like there's just an absolute massacre that took place in this cabin. But what became clear was that the victims had been beaten with two different hammers and only one hammer was found inside the cabin as well as the steak knife. This bent steak knife that was found was on the floor and the force of the stabbings with this knife actually bent the blade 
on this knife. Another knife was found as well as the hammer, which I mentioned was found on a table near the kitchen. What also became apparent upon investigating the scene was that over 22 feet of medical tape and electrical wiring was used to tie up Sue, Johnny, and Dana. Sue had been stripped naked from the waist down, but apparently there was no signs of sexual assault, which I mean, I don't even know if I believe that. I mean, why else was she stripped naked from the waist down? But they had gagged her by her own underwear and a bandana and medical tape was wrapped around her mouth. Sue's hands and feet were also bound and she was covered by a blood soaked yellow blanket. It was very clear that Sue was stabbed in the chest as well as her throat had been slashed. She had also been hit in the head with a Daisy 880 BB gun. Sadly, Johnny's throat was also slashed and an electrical wire was tied around his hands and feet as well as around Dana's feet. All three victims had blunt force trauma to their heads from being beaten with a hammer and there was no blood underneath the bindings of the two boys and neither of them had any defensive wounds, which meant that they were likely tied up before they were murdered. What's also interesting though is that Sue did have multiple defensive wounds and blood was found all over the bindings around her hands and feet. She was also tied up more tightly than the other two were and she had definitely fought back. Also, this BB gun was not found at the scene, but multiple pellets and the rifle's barrel sights were in the cabin. So police believe that the sights were broken off while Sue is being beaten with the BB gun. The bottoms of Sue's feet and the soles of the boy's shoes were covered in blood, which meant that all three victims had walked in blood at some point, but it's unclear how that could have played out. So this is very, very strange. And I guess part of the mystery is like, how, how did these events unfold? Were they really tied up before they were beaten or were they forced to do something prior to being killed? I mean, it's, it's really, really hard to say in these scenarios, like what came first? I'm thinking that whoever committed this horrific crime came in with the BB gun and all the family members at the time saw that person had a gun and they were probably being ordered to, you know, bundle up and basically ended up getting tied up and everything because they thought it was probably a real gun. So it's not like they could have ran away because they would have risked getting shot in the back or something. So it seems the family had to follow whatever orders were being given to them. And then once they were tied up, that's when they pulled out the different weapons. That's a really good point. Cause I still can't wrap my head around how these people were brutally murdered. And yet these three boys never woke up. That's, that's the biggest thing to me. I mean, I guess kids can sleep through anything, but all three of them, none of them woke up. None of them saw this go down. Like it doesn't make any sense. So this idea that you put forward that, you know, coming in with the BB gun was probably the most likely scenario. Cause you know, Sue and you know, the other two probably didn't know that this was not a real gun and probably would have complied with whoever did this is demands. Like if you see a gun, if you're held at gunpoint, you're going to do what this person says. And they probably bound gagged them right off the bat so that, mm-hmm. you know, it would stifle any screams and any, any sort of noise as, as much as possible. So yeah, that's a really good point. And apparently when the police asked the three boys who had been sleeping in the back bedroom, if they had heard anything the previous night, they said they had it. However, a couple who lived nearby said they heard what sounded like muffled groaning or screaming around 1.30 a.m. But because they didn't know where these sounds were coming from and they didn't hear anything else at night, they never said anything about it. 
Some other interesting evidence that was found at the scene was the fact that there was dried blood on the doorknob leading into the back bedroom, as well as the only phone in the cabin had been taken off the hook. So whoever came in here had this completely planned out and they knew that they had to, you know, bound and gag them. They had to keep them from making noise as well as calling for help. So the only phone, I can only imagine that somebody may have even ran to the phone, took the phone off the hook to start calling before they were, you know, subdued and, and bound and gagged is what, what I think probably happened. But also what's interesting is that there was no sign of forced entry into the cabin. But again, the family did leave the doors unlocked, so it's possible that this whoever this perpetrator was just literally walked right in the door. But again, I think this comes back to Joel's idea that they probably opened the door, had the gun out, and immediately had everybody subdued. Police were able to lift a bloody fingerprint from the handrail leading to the back door. But unfortunately, this print couldn't be identified. But it did tell the police that the killers had likely left through that back door. Also, when they arrived, all the lights were still turned off and all the shades were still drawn. For me, this crime seems very difficult for one person to pull off, you know, to overpower three people, get them all tied up. Unless, again, you have this gun, I think one person could have absolutely did it. I mean, you hold somebody at gunpoint, it doesn't matter how many people there are, you're going to be able to get them to comply with your demands. And especially in this scenario, I think they probably would have. But at the time, police were thinking that there must have been more than one person involved with this crime. There had to have been at least two, maybe even three. Sorry, before I continue, I just have to talk about this for a second because this is just crazy what's happening here in my studio. So while we're recording this episode, we're noticing constant what seems like interference, electrical interference happening with my microphone specifically. And it only seems to be my microphone and it seems to just start and stop at random. And I've literally replaced this microphone. I've checked all connections. There's literally nothing that could possibly be wrong. This is like relatively new setup, new cables, new microphone. Like there's absolutely nothing that I can see that would be causing this random like buzzing sound happening. So I'll be in the middle of telling the story and then randomly it'll just start like making this weird little buzzing noise and it'll, it'll go on for a little bit. And then I have to just kind of jiggle my cable or you know, unplug it even completely and plug it back in and then it goes away, but then it comes back randomly. And I'm starting to really believe that I, I have some paranormal activity happening in this studio because I know I've talked about this before, but it's just kind of getting out of hand. Like it seems like every time I come in here to record an episode of any podcast, there's always some weird, strange, like electrical issues and not only my microphone, but I'm sure if you've watched the show on YouTube, you've noticed that my camera will randomly either go blurry out of focus or just shake. It, it does like I'm looking at my camera the entire time guys. And it's completely it, to me. I never see it shake. I never see it like go out of focus on the little screen. But yet when you go back and edit it, there's all this weird shit happening. And, and not only that, even in, you know, some of our other shows, we have these random issues happening in here. And one of the signs of paranormal activity is anything electrical electronics gets fucked with. Yes. And there it goes. It's back now. Yeah. I don't know if you can hear that, but it's like, that's so weird. I literally start talking about paranormal and it starts doing it. Yeah. The timing too. It's just, it's always the timing. It's like whenever, yeah, it's so weird. Like in another show we did, 
there we were talking about ghosts or something and and we had a similar type of thing there was a flicker just a random cutout of the audio it, it really seems to me like there's some type of activity in this studio i don't know how this happened because this building i'm in is completely brand new i literally built this from the ground up i i i believe i have saged it before i believe i've you know clear i thought i cleared everything out but maybe not maybe i need to go back and do this again because clearly something is here there's some type of presence here because this is the weirdest thing it's driving me crazy like constantly having to deal with these weird little issues like yeah even like my mic will cut out like randomly it's bizarre i'm sorry i just had to share that i'm like i don't know what to do this is this is crazy because this is just happening all the time and very strange it didn't do this when i first set all this up and built the studio this is less than a year old no problems Mm -hmm. but now feel like ever since i i feel like a lot of it started since i started this show (laughs) like which is crazy to me because now i'm like wow you know people have told me some of you have told me that you know just talking about some of these things can invite (laughs) spirits into you know your your uh your studio and in your presence and i'm starting to think that that's exactly what's going on because these issues are unexplainable i don't know what to do and we always see someone comment on our videos that they notice the camera glitching or, yeah. you know, just strange activity. It makes no sense. This yeah. is all brand new equipment. I've replaced cables. I've, I've literally like pulled my hair out. I've reset things up, taken it apart. I I've literally don't know what else to think other than there is something unexplainable happening in the studio that is causing these issues. Cause again, it didn't happen at the beginning, but over time it's gradually gotten worse and worse and it's just getting out of control at this point but let's go ahead and get back into the story here so at this point investigators or police are still trying to figure out you know what was the series of events how this attack may have gone down and what's become very clear to police is that this attack was personal because these murders were brutal they were up front i mean anytime someone is bludgeoned to death or stabbed to death there is passion behind that killing and, and in a lot of cases it's a personal vendetta that somebody has against another person. I mean, you can kill somebody a, a lot of other ways that are not so up close personal. I mean, you're going to get blood all over you if you're stabbing somebody. I mean, it's much easier to just shoot somebody with a gun. And in this particular case, they made sure that all of these victims suffered before they died. And while this is all going down, the Seabolt's cabin, which is not that far away from the Sharp's cabin, no one hears anything at all. No screaming, you know, no hammers being pounding, no knives being driven into walls, nothing. There's absolutely no sound whatsoever. And again, it's just crazy that this horrific attack is going down and yet nobody hears this. Like, that's just crazy to me. No screaming, no, you know, no sound at all, no banging. It it just makes no sense to me that this all happened with virtually no one knowing. Especially in a small town, because for the most part, it's always quiet you know so yeah yeah you would think that you would hear like a pin drop but you know some people are like oh this is the forest you know there are sounds at night you know you got animals and you know depending on the weather you could have you know some weather related sounds being made but still i'm like this is there's still definitely quiet out there and this type of attack going down just i can't believe that not even a peep is heard it just makes no sense So police are there. They're trying to figure out what's going on. And what's crazy is that it took them several hours 
after they discovered the bodies before they realized that 12-year-old Tina Sharp was missing. She was not among the dead. When they went to her bed, they did find a small amount of blood on her bedsheet, but other than that, there was no trace of her anywhere. And not only did they not realize that Tina was missing, they just did a horrible job at securing the scene. They never fully secured it, make sure it wasn't contaminated. They just walked all over it, just completely made a mess of the crime scene. And this happens so much, especially in the 70s, 80s, it feels like in so many cases that are unsolved where the police just were not prepared to analyze a scene like this, did not have any sort of crime scene skills or training, so they didn't know how to protect the evidence, man, protect the DNA evidence specifically. And so they just got their DNA and completely messed up the scene. But eventually the police did launch a massive search for Tina covering a five mile radius. The police put out an all points bulletin, brought in police canines and called in the FBI. Even posters were distributed and hung everywhere. And with Tina missing, the police theorized that she might've been the primary target and it could have been a kidnapping plan that just turned deadly. As far as suspects go, Jim Sharp, Sue's ex-husband was one of the first suspects. She had left Jim because, again, he was violent and was sexually abusing their daughters. So police thought that Jim may have had a motive for killing Sue, as well as kidnapping Tina and killing the others. So soon after, the police launched an investigation into Jim, and they even surveilled him. And after several days, they brought him in for questioning and asked him if he had kidnapped his daughter. But Jim ended up providing an airtight alibi and was soon taken off the suspect list. Next, the police investigated Sue's life and anyone else who she had been involved with. And there were rumors that she was involved in sex work and drug trafficking. But these rumors were quickly dismissed. Because there was no drugs found in the cabin at all or in Sue's system. Sheila told the police that Sue wasn't involved in any of these illegal activities and that she would have known if her mom was sneaking out of the house at night to either you know, do sex work or was selling or doing drugs. Also, a woman who knew Dana... Carla McMullen claimed that Dana had stolen LSD from local drug dealers, and that may have led to the murders, but this was never proven. However, a woman who knew Dana, her name was Carla McMullen, claimed that Dana had stolen LSD from local drug dealers, which may have led to the murders. It was some type of retaliation for stealing drugs. But again, this, there's no evidence for this, and it's never been proven. It was also theorized that the person who drove Dana and Johnny back to the cabin that night could have been the murderer and may even have been at the party that they had gone to. The police did their best to try to chase down information from anybody who had been at the party, but this did not go very far. And if there was any drugs that was being used at the party, obviously who's going to come forward and admit to the police. Oh yeah, there was, you know, drugs going on here. So after this theory got ruled out, there was some other rumors that involved sex trafficking and ritualistic killings as well that were being passed around. But again, there was no evidence to support these rumors and the police quickly dismissed them. They then took a look into Tina's life and started talking to her friends, classmates, and teachers. They soon discovered that one of Tina's teachers, Joel Walker Lipsy, was very fond of her. In fact, Joel seemed fixated on Tina, maybe even obsessed with her, as he had a picture of her on his desk at school as well as in his home. Kind of creepy for a teacher to have a picture of their student some witnesses have even said that joel lipsy had been at cabin 28 the night of the murders so after hearing this he jumped to the top of the suspect list eventually though he moved to a different area and was actually arrested for molesting a young girl but like jim sharp 
Joel had an airtight alibi for that night, and the police couldn't find any physical evidence to link him to the crime. With another suspect off the list, the police started to theorize that maybe Tina wasn't the target, but rather the distraction. That maybe whoever this killer or killers were wanted them to, you know, kind of search for Tina while distracting from the main investigation at hand. So while the police were chasing down these leads and looking at all these theories, Sheila believed that her mother, Sue, was the primary target of the killers and that Tina, Johnny, and Dana just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's also possible if somebody was there to kill Sue and Sue only, they might have already known and assumed that Tina would have been with Sheila at the Seabolt's cabin and that Johnny would have been in the basement room or out for the night. So maybe the thought was that they would go in, kill Sue, and then leave, and that was it. But then the police got a very interesting piece of information from Justin Smart, who again was one of the young boys who was staying at the cabin that night. And after talking to him some more, he realized that he might have seen something. He told them that he thought it was a terrible dream, but now he wasn't so sure. So the sheriff decided to hypnotize Justin to see if he could remember more details about what he had seen that night. And obviously this was a very controversial decision because it meant Justin would have to relive a very traumatic event if it worked. This hypnotic session was led by Dr. Jerry Dash, who had been accused of asking leading questions while Justin was hypnotized. While under hypnosis, Justin described the dream. Before the boys went to bed, they had been watching the love boat. And in the dream, he was on the boat from the show. He said he saw two men stab Sue, Johnny, and Dana, and throw them overboard. Then the men escaped in a rubber raft. Details from the dream matched the real crime, though. Justin said he saw one of the men slice Sue in the chest, and that they had used a hammer during the attack. He said he saw Johnny and Dana arguing with these men, and then he saw Tina come out of the bedroom when one of the men grabbed her and forced her out through a back door. Meanwhile, Sue was bleeding uncontrollably, and Justin said he tried to stop the blood coming from her chest with towels. And when that didn't work, he decided to cover her in a blanket. Justin described the two men in great detail as well. One was about 5 foot 11 to 6 foot 2 with dark blonde hair. The other man was shorter, about 5 foot 6 to 5 foot 10 with black hair. And they were both in their late 20s or early 30s and both wore gold frame sunglasses. So based off of these descriptions, the police were like, okay, well, this is something. I mean, this case is quickly going cold. So I don't know how reliable, you know, you could take information from a hip hypnosis session but the police were like we got something we've got you know enough to make a composite sketch so that's exactly what they did they made composite sketches of these two individuals that justin had described and they put it out in the paper for everybody to take a look at and what's crazy is that one of these sketches looked a lot like justin's stepfather marty smart soon after all these hypnosis sessions justin came to the realization that what he had seen wasn't a dream after all He claimed he did witness the murders and that his stepfather wasn't involved though, but the police weren't so sure. Marty was a Vietnam vet and he had PTSD and was an aggressive and angry person. Everyone knew he hated Johnny Sharp because he was a troublemaker and Marty was physically abusive toward his wife and her son and one time he even tried to run them over with his car. Because of his violent outbursts, his wife Marilyn was considering leaving him And it's possible that Sue may have been helping her. I mean, they were friends, so maybe Marilyn was confiding in Sue and, you know, they were sort of conspiring to 
help her leave Marty. And that would give Marty motive to take out Sue. You know, if she's trying to interfere with his marriage, it's definitely a motive there. And it also makes sense that Sue would be this person for Marilyn to confide in because she had just went through the same experience. She had just left her abusive husband as well. So it wouldn't be totally out of character for Marty to have a violent outburst towards Sue and kill her. I mean, it's not totally out of the question. And after a particularly violent outburst that he had, Marty at one point was admitted into the mental health unit of a VA hospital. And at the hospital, he met a man named John Bubaday, also nicknamed Bo, who was there for the very same reason. And apparently these two hit it off, and Bo ended up moving in with Marty and Marilyn after they were released. Both Marty and Bo had criminal records, and Bo had been in and out of prison for years. He was even involved in organized crime in Chicago, and it's possible he may have even worked for the mob in Las Vegas. And when police went to talk to Marilyn about these two, Marilyn told investigators that she suspected that they were involved somehow. She said the night that Sue was murdered, Bo had asked her out, and she said no. And that night, Marilyn was out at a bar called Ketty's Back Door with Marty and Bo, and Bo told them he felt like killing someone. And then the three of them went home around 11 o'clock and Marilyn went to bed. But Marty and Bo decided to go back to the bar and keep drinking. And when Marilyn woke up at 2 in the morning, she found them near the wood stove burning something. But she never found out what it was. But obviously it was enough to pique her interest in wondering what the hell were they burning at 2 in the morning. Very suspicious. Also, Marty and Bo were wearing different clothes than they had on earlier in the night. And they were both wearing three-piece suits and sunglasses, which these were very strange outfits for a small town dive bar. So what were they doing during the time of 11 and 2 a.m.? One theory is that they dressed like this so that maybe they could establish an alibi and somebody at the bar would have remembered they were there. And I'm like, well, this was a tiny town. Clearly, they would have remembered if Marty and Bo were there. So, you know, I don't think they would have put on their suits so that, you know, it would pique people's attention. It's very strange, though. So clearly this was suspicious, and the police brought them in for questioning. And the Plumas County Sheriff at the time, Doug Thomas, was at the helm of this case. And instead of having his own detectives interview Marty and Bo, he allowed two investigators from the organized crime unit of the Department of Justice to take over. And both of these investigators usually handled gang and mob-related crimes, not homicides or kidnappings. So this is very weird that he's you know, taking the case from his own detectives and giving it to the Department of Justice to investigate instead. And not only that, these investigators made the very bizarre decision to question Marty and Bo together instead of separating them, which just makes no sense whatsoever. They can conspire their story together. They can feed off each other. This is absolutely not helpful at all. And Bo told them that he used to be a police officer and that he had been shot in an armed robbery, which left him injured to the point where he couldn't be a cop anymore. And when they asked him about his interest in Sue, he said, oh, I couldn't have been interested in her because I was injured. She wouldn't want to be with me. But these were all lies that were never checked by the investigators at the time. And when they asked what Bo's alibi was, he was just like, I was at the bar with Marty. So they were like, okay, sounds good. Also during the questioning, Marty said that his stepson, Justin, couldn't have witnessed the murders because Marty would have noticed him because he was with Marty, right? Which is a strange thing to imply that Marty was also at the crime scene. But the investigators did not know what they were doing or they just chose not to press this or challenge it at all. He then went on to say that while he was out at Ketty's Backdoor Bar with Marilyn and Bo, 
he saw two suspicious looking men who looked a lot like him and Bo. Like who says shit like that? That makes no sense whatsoever. Marty also talked about his PTSD and anger issues and how him and Marilyn were having problems, which was very stressful for him. And then he went on to say that he had heard that a hammer was used in the murder and wanted it to be clear that he was missing one. And he was able to describe this missing hammer in great detail. But again, the investigators didn't follow up on this either. And then they're like, all right, well, let's give him a polygraph test. And they gave Marty a polygraph test and he passed it. And after being questioned some more, Marty and Bo were allowed to leave. And after this, not suspicious at all, they both left town a few weeks later. Marty eventually moved back to Oregon and Bo moved back to Illinois. And neither of them were ever questioned by police again. What's crazy is that years later, Marilyn said that after the murders, she gave the police a bloody jacket she had found in her basement. Wow. She believed the jacket belonged to Tina Sharp. Yet there's no records of this bloody jacket in any of the case files or evidence boxes for the Keddie Cabin murders. Sheriff Doug Thomas later said that Marty had given the police quote, endless clues to try to throw the suspicion away from him. Later, it was also revealed that Sheriff Doug Thomas and Marty Smart happened to be very close friends, which could have obviously played into Marty getting special treatment and potentially completely covering up this crime. But after Marty and Bo left town, the police pretty much gave up on the search. I mean, the leads that they were getting were going nowhere and there was really nowhere else to go. Which is crazy because there's way too many red flags pointing to Marty and Bo that they seem like they are the suspects of this of these murders. And it just blows my mind how the police, like, they get a little bit of evidence maybe, and then they're like, no, we're not investigating this any further. Like, that just doesn't make any sense. It seems like they're not even doing their jobs. And to me, it seems totally plausible that there was a cover-up by the police. I mean, clearly mm-hmm. if Marty and, you know, sheriff doug or friends i mean he doesn't want his buddy to go you know go away for this crime then why not cover it up in, in these small towns and in these small counties i mean the sheriff has a lot of power and definitely during the 70s and 80s i mean this was not totally uncommon for you know the police to be corrupt or you know higher ups be corrupt in the police departments and so it's totally possible that this was a complete cover up and it was marty and Bo that committed these horrific murders but eventually the investigation just basically stopped and the case went cold sheila however never gave up and continued to contact the plumas county sheriff's office regularly asking about the progress on the case she was obviously determined to get justice for her family and to find out what had happened to her little sister tina but then on april 22nd 1984 three years and 11 days after the keddy cabin murders a man named Ronald Padrini was walking through a wooded area at Camp 18 in Butte County, about 100 miles from Keddy. He was just walking around looking for bottles and cans to recycle and ended up stepping on something. And when he looked down, he saw that he had stepped on a part of a human skull. He then contacted the police and they came out to investigate. And what he had found was actually part of a cranium and part of a mandible. But they had no idea who these bones belonged to. But what's crazy is that soon after finding these bone fragments, the Butte County Sheriff's Office received an anonymous phone call from a man who told them that these skull fragments belonged to Tina Sharp. The police actually were smart enough to take a recording of this anonymous call. However, the copy of the recording has mysteriously disappeared. What doesn't make sense to me, though, is how did this anonymous individual know that this skull was Tina's? Unless whoever called this in 
was the killer themselves because I mean, how else would anybody know? There's no way it had to have been the person that actually had taken Tina to that location and knew that when this skull was found, it was going to be Tina. There's no other way. It's impossible. After they found the skull, the area was searched heavily and the police found the decomposed remains, an empty surgical tape dispenser, a blue nylon jacket, and a pair of jeans with a missing back pocket, as well as a child's blanket. And in June of 1984, dental records positively identified the skull as belonging to 12-year-old Tina Sharp. And after doing some extensive forensic testing, they were able to determine that she was likely killed shortly after being taken from cabin 28. After this whole ordeal went down, the surviving Sharp kids, Sheila, Rick, and Greg, were sent to live with their father after the murders. And this was obviously very hard for the surviving kids to find out that their sister Tina had been brutally murdered. And at first, when she was told the news, she thought that Tina had been found alive. And obviously that was not the case, and she realized that she was never coming home. But at least this was some closure for her to find out what had happened to her sister. But at the time, the police were still no closer to finding out who had killed her family and why. And at this point, the investigation was stalled entirely. And in the coming years, the two most likely suspects died, Marty and Bo, before any progress on the case was made. Bo died of natural causes in Chicago in 1988, and Marty died of cancer in Portland in 2000. And over the years, because Marty and Bo had been officially ruled out as suspects by the police, the only other real leads they had was trying to see if any serial killers might have been connected to the Cabin 28 murders. In the mid-90s, the police considered serial killer Robert Joseph Silvera Jr., also known as the Boxcar Killer, as a suspect. And after his arrest, he started confessing to dozens of murders. And at some point, he even confessed to the Cabin 28 murders. But again, lots of serial killers confess to murders they don't commit, and they figured out that he was in prison at the time of the murder, so he was ruled out. And over all these years, this cabin has attracted many different types of people, ghost hunters, true crime enthusiasts, just thrill seekers who want to, I guess, go to a place where a horrific murders took place. So much so that eventually the cabin was condemned and it was actually demolished in 2004. And if you're watching this on YouTube, I'll go ahead and put some clips in of Sheila and Rick walking through the cabin before they actually demolished it. But the cabin is no longer there. In 2010, Greg Hagwood was made sheriff of Plumas County. Maybe this was hope for their case. And Greg had actually known the Sharp family when he was a teenager. He had only been 16 years old when the murders happened. But of course, he never forgot them. And when he became sheriff, one of his priorities was to re-examine the evidence from the Cabin 28 murders. He was determined to solve it. And they went through thousands of pages from the case files. And in those pages, they discovered that Marty Smart had been seeing a therapist at the VA hospital. So they contacted the therapist that he had been seeing. And she told investigators that Marty confessed to killing Sue and Tina during a session, but denied killing Johnny and Dana. He said Sue had been the real target, but since Tina had witnessed the crime, he had to kill her too. Apparently, the therapist said that they went to the police at the time, but they never followed up with her, which I find hard to believe, and they just dismissed it as hearsay. I mean, I don't know. I feel like if a therapist comes to the police about information a client gives them about a murder, that's a person the police should definitely take seriously and follow up on, but apparently they didn't. They're just the world's worst police, I guess. And by 2013, they were still going through the piles of evidence of boxes that they had from the case. And inside one of the boxes, they found a sealed envelope, which was a copy of the missing anonymous call. They sent this recording to the FBI's forensic audio, video, and image analysis unit. 
And I don't think anything ever came out of this at all. I don't think they were ever able to match this into anybody. But also in this box, they found another file, which had a letter postmarked 16 days after the murders from Marty Smart to his wife, Marilyn. And in the letter, Marty's asking Marilyn for a second chance. He wanted to make their marriage work. He actually wrote, quote, I've paid the price of your love. And now that I've bought it with four people's lives, you tell me we are through great. What else do you want? Which, wow, that just seems like a straight up confession right there. Yeah, definitely. Apparently when the police went and asked Marilyn about this letter, she doesn't remember receiving it at all, but she was able to confirm that it was written in Marty's handwriting. So I don't know. Very interesting. Apparently they also sent in the letter for DNA testing, but again, we don't know the results of that yet. In the spring of 2016, a man was using a metal detector around a lake in Keddie when he found a hammer, but he assumed it was just some trash and threw it back into the lake. And later on, the man actually read about the cabin 28 murders and was like, oh shit, I just threw a hammer that might've been evidence. So he ended up contacting the police and the police actually searched the lake and they were able to find the hammer. And it actually matches the description of the hammer. Marty smart said went missing from his home right down to the color of the handle, which is absolutely crazy. And so they sent this hammer in for DNA testing. And I mean, it's been in a lake for a long time. I doubt they're going to pull anything off of it. But at this time, Sheriff Greg Hagwood has said that they had at least six still living suspects that they were considering. In 2018, the police confirmed that DNA evidence from a piece of tape found at the crime scene matched a living suspect, which means that it's possible that Marty and Bo did not commit these murders and perhaps it was somebody else that is actually still alive that could still be prosecuted for these murders. And again, there's still a number of other objects that are still awaiting DNA testing and the family is still awaiting the results of these. And they're hoping that maybe we'll get enough DNA evidence that the police can actually go and make an arrest for the murders of the Sharp family. And for the sake of Sheila and her brothers, I really hope that they get justice in this case. I think this is a solvable case. I do think there is a possibility, though, that Marty and Bo may have done these murders. And, you know, maybe it was Marty and somebody else that, you know, was involved that just never has gotten brought up before. I think that's possible. I don't know if Bo was actually involved in this at all. I think Marty definitely has a motive for these crimes. And I think that he probably was the one that that murdered Sue. But then again, I mean, it's it's possible that, you know, I mean, the tape didn't bring back his DNA evidence. So maybe it's somebody else. Maybe it's somebody else completely. And to think that this person might even still be living in Keddy is is truly terrifying. If you think about it, I mean, there could literally be a killer who's just been living, you know, undetected all these years in the Keddy area or or probably out of the Keddy area. I would assume they probably would have left, but you never know, man. I mean, this, this kind of thing happens all the time where, you know, somebody commits a murder and then they just lay low all these years and, you know, hoping that they never get caught. So I don't know. I I do think this case will be solved though. What do you think? I don't know, man. I mean, there's just too many red flags to me that point to Marty and Bo. um, And they fled the States too. I mean, both of them, to me, that's like the biggest red flag after something like horrific as this happened. And they both just skedaddle like that. Yeah. You yeah. Know? After being questioned by police, part of me thinks that perhaps one of these living suspects could even have been a former police officer or perhaps the sheriff even. I mean, what if Doug 
was involved in this or somebody that worked in the sheriff's office. I think, I think the sheriff's office is wrapped up in this somehow and maybe they've uncovered who it was and they just, they got to get more evidence before they can actually go and take this person down. But at the end of the day though, I do hope that with the DNA technology that we have now that hopefully we'll be able to get, you know, you know, get the hammer. If we can get the hammer traced back to somebody and it connects with the person whose DNA is on this tape, then boom, there you go. I think that's probably going to be enough to bring this person in and charge them with, you know, the murders or being an accomplice at least. I mean, there, it doesn't seem like they have any physical proof that Marty was involved. Otherwise I think they would say that by now. So, I mean, it is possible that Marty's not involved at all. And maybe he just said this because maybe even it's a hired gig, you know, maybe he hired somebody to kill Sue and, and he happened to kill the rest of the family as well. I mean, that's another scenario that I think could have happened too, is that maybe it was Marty either paid somebody off or it was a friend or, you know, Bo even had mob ties. It could have just been a completely hired hitman. I mean, it doesn't seem like these guys have a lot of money to pay somebody to do it, but maybe Bo just knew a guy. I mean, there's mobsters out there that just kill people and maybe he knew a guy that came in and did it. But then again, I'm like, if he was a hitman, then why didn't you just shoot Sue? Why was it this brutal bludgeoning and and stabbing? I mean, to me, that that makes me think that this had to have been somebody personal, somebody that really, really hated Sue. And the only person that we know of that was like this was Marty because of, you know, the Maryland situation. So, and that's what's so shocking was there was so much blood inside the house from the crime scene. And I mean, the police didn't take those uh, fucked it up. Yeah. They completely fucked it up. The, the place got contaminated with other people's DNA. And, you know, I feel like due to how brutal these murders were and what weapons they use, like a giant steak knife and how aggressively the victims were being stabbed. I would think that that suspect might've slipped his hand, you know, on the knife, cut him open. Maybe the suspect's blood is in that house as well. So it just blows my mind that, you know, the police couldn't find suspects from the DNA evidence of the blood in the house. Well, again, they never secured the scene and, and, in so many of these unsolved cases, especially from, you know, 40, 50 years ago, they just weren't trained to like tape off the area, secure it and hold it. Don't walk around. Don't look at things. Don't pick things up, you know, before actual trained detectives come in, homicide detectives come in and do their job. I mean, none of that happened here. And again, this is a tiny, tiny town. So they've got a couple sheriff's deputies. They probably don't have any experience in homicide. So again, I mean, they didn't know what they were doing or perhaps they did. And, you know, Sheriff Doug was somehow involved in this. And and I would not be surprised if in the coming years we see somebody go down for this and somebody else gets charged with the Ketty Cabin murders. I would not be shocked. And I definitely wouldn't be shocked if it was Doug or somebody connected to the Sheriff's Department. I think there's a strong possibility that somebody involved with the police is involved with these murders because it's just hard to believe that, you know, police would go and fuck up the scene so bad and not, not interrogating anybody, not, you know, pass it off to another agency. It just seems like they were doing everything they could possibly do to just get rid of this case and sweep it under the rug and, you know, move on. I mean, it's just crazy. It's just absolutely crazy to me that 
you know, this case ended up to where, where it is now. So I don't know. You'll have to let me know what you think out there though. Cause I'm definitely interested to hear your thoughts. There's a lot of theories out there. Again, could have been a serial killer. could have been somebody completely unnamed. I, I think, uh, there's a lot of possibilities here, endless possibilities. So that's why it's uh, definitely one of the most infamous ones. And as if you've ever seen the strangers, you can definitely, you know, when watching those movies, you definitely see after knowing about the kitty cabin murders, where they took inspiration for that film. I mean, there's so many things in, in those movies where you're like, Oh yeah, that, you know, the way things go down, the knives and all of that, the, you know, how the murders go down, even in, in the actual strangers film. I mean, it's very similar. So it's, it's definitely a, a, a creepy one. It's definitely scary. It definitely makes you think twice about staying in a, you know, it does. a little cabin resort town in the middle of nowhere where help is, you know, could be literally corrupted and wrapped up in the crimes itself. I mean, it's definitely a, a scary thought to think about. So with that, I will leave you with that thought of <laughs> will i ever go to a rural campsite or you know cabin to uh vacation so with that being said though we'll go ahead and wrap up today's episode there hopefully you enjoyed this episode of the lights out podcast if you did we do appreciate you leaving us a review a rating on apple Podcasts. make sure you're subscribed there as well and follow us on spotify if you're watching us on youtube Uh, Let us know about your thoughts on this uh, strange activity you're having with our studio. I want to know if there's any paranormal experts out there, if you think this could be a a case of paranormal activity, because I'm about to break out my ghost hunting kit and (laughs) just do a whole episode of us in here trying to capture some activity because I am completely blown away at all the issues that we're having in here. And it's all unexplainable. It doesn't make any sense. We're going to do one last thing and check some other mics and see if it it does happen to other mics though. It's happened to the mic that Joel's using too as well. Uh, but today it just, mine was going fucking crazy. So, uh, we're going to do a little bit of process of elimination and maybe see if it's just a, a mic issue, but I don't think it is because there's way too many things happening. I'm sure the camera bugged out at some point during this yeah. episode too. So can't wait to watch that back. But until next time guys lights out everybody. <laughs>